0: And in that region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which will come to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, Who is Christ the Lord? And this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. This past Thanksgiving, Marsh and I were able to spend Thanksgiving with our daughter Kelly and her husband Andy and four of our grandchildren. After we had a great meal, we all went out to go to the movie and there we went and saw The Grinch. And if you're out watching The Grinch, then you know you're preparing for Christmas. And sure enough, after the show was over, we were talking all about Santa Claus and what did you want Santa Claus to bring. And it was a great time. And I have to tell you, I'm a great fan of Santa Claus. And I love that part of the tradition in our culture, especially when you go back and look at how it developed and and how it's a part of history. It really goes back to the third century when we had a bishop of Myra, which is a town in modern-day Turkey. And the bishop of Myra was Nicholas. And he had a real passion for giving gifts to children, surprising them with gifts, wanting to bless life. And so it became so popular, and he became so loved. In the end, he was made a saint, and he became known as Saint Nicholas. So the idea of gift-giving and surprising people with gifts became a part of the Christian tradition early on with Christmas. And he was a part of that tradition kind of off and on in varying degrees for the next 1,500 years. But it was in the early 1800s when Clement Moore wrote the, the poem, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas." And in that, he begins to talk about St. Nick, who's going to show up with all the presents, delivering them to all the children. It was a, a very special thing that was going to be going on. And it really caught on, caught people's imagination, and it really began to grow for us uh, as a culture, as people celebrated um, St. Nicholas. The Dutch had always enjoyed celebrating St. Nicholas. And so this was a part of their tradition. And in the um, 1700s and 1800s, a large migration of people from Holland settled in New York. And they were celebrating St. Nicholas. But with their their accent, St. Nicholas came out Syntaclus. And Syntaclus got corrupted into Santa Claus. And so we got Santa Claus and it's continued to grow in our understanding. And as the years have gone by, Santa Claus has very much been given the characteristics of God. All seeing, all knowing, all present. You listen to the the song um, of Santa Claus Comes to Town. You better watch out. You better not pout. You better not cry. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. For many people this really has become their theology about God. Whether you know it or not, it's easy to feel like this is your theology. That God is all-seeing, all-knowing, all-present. That God is watching you and He's making a list. Checking it twice. going to find out who's naughty and nice. And if you're on the naughty list, Then God doesn't bless you. That becomes the theology of a lot of people without really thinking about it. And I don't believe that that is what the story of Christmas is about. And I believe the story of Christmas is so important in the message. It's why this morning I want to continue on with the sermon series The Greatest Story Ever Told. We said this whole year has been about telling the story. And we've been trying to tell the stories of faith, the stories of our faith, the stories that define who we are. And I wanted to end this series this year with the greatest story ever told, saying, if we look at the story of the birth of Christ, then we begin to hear what changed people's lives 2,000 years ago. If we look at the people in the story, we see their lives have been changed. And if we know the story... Those same things change our lives as well today. Last week we looked at Mary and Joseph. Today I want to look at the shepherds and the message that the angels would bring. Now have you ever wondered why God chose to reveal the message of the birth of Jesus to the shepherds? Why the shepherds? You and I have our nativity scene set up. And we are so used to seeing Mary and Joseph and the baby in a manger. We're used to seeing the wise men. We're used to seeing the shepherds. Why did God choose shepherds to share the news that the Messiah was born? Last week, I started telling you about how 50 years ago right now, we were getting so close to landing on the moon. It was an exciting time in history 50 years ago. We had so many Apollo projects going on. We were getting closer and closer. And on July 20th, 1969, we would land on the moon. We were getting close. 50 years later, exciting things are happening in space because no longer are we thinking about landing on the moon. Now people are talking about landing on Mars. They say it's just a matter of time before we will have people on Mars. Now that's hard to fathom. I told you last week about how on May the 5th, NASA had launched a Mars lander and it started on its journey that took seven months. Seven months traveling at more than 12,000 miles an hour to travel 91 million miles and it finally made it to Mars last week. Finally made it to Mars, and there was this incredible landing, and it was so exciting. Textbook, picture perfect, the lander is on Mars. And I was telling you about that last week. Well, I don't know if you went home to follow up on it, but I've been trying to check in to see what are the things that are going on, what's happening. And this week, we heard the first sounds from the planet Mars ever. And it was the wind blowing across that plane. If you had been there standing on the surface, you would have heard the wind sounding so much like if you and I were out there in an Oklahoma day listening to the wind rustling by. I mean, the first time ever sound has been heard from Mars. It is incredible what's going on. Well, everybody's very excited about the lander and all the research it's going to do over the next two years. But what I didn't tell you about last week was that when they launched this Mars lander, right behind it they also launched two small um, comsat they call them. Small satellites. They were about 12 by 8 by 4 inches. About the size of a satchel or a briefcase. These little bitty satellites, 12 by 8 by 4 And they launched these and there was two of them and they were supposed to be trailing along in the shadows with InSight for 91 million miles in seven months all the way to Mars. They wanted to see if these little satellites could actually work in deep outer space. They were not controllable like InSight. No, they were just going to travel along, parallel each other, following behind in the shadow of InSight. They were nicknamed Wally and Eve. If you saw the the movie Wally by Pixar years ago, you know that there were two little robots that went into outer space through the heavens, Wally and Eve. Well, that's the name of these two little satellites, and they've been going for seven months now. They perform flawlessly. When they got all the way to Mars, they were taking pictures of the, of the lander as it went down. They took pictures of Mars. They were not designed to be controllable like um, the, the lander, like InSight was. No, they would now go into orbit around Mars and then towards the sun and then come back and be in deep outer space forever. Forever. But the amazing thing is, you know, Insight, this Mars lander—that's the name of it. Insight cost nine hundred million to build. Wally and Eve cost fifty thousand each. And what scientists wanted to see was, could they really go explore the outer depths of space for fifty thousand each, instead of nine hundred million? And the fact that it has been so successful. It, it is going to change the way you and i we, we we go and and discover the universe what we're going to learn in the, just a few, few short years to come is going to be incredible but nobody's talking about wally and eve everybody wants to talk about insight the lander on mars and i got to thinking have you ever felt like wally and eve that you are trailing in the shadows of someone else? Someone else is getting all the love from mom and dad. Someone else gets all the glory at work. Someone else is in the spotlight and you're just kind of trailing along behind in the shadows. That everybody's talking about someone else but it's not all about you. That's who the shepherds were. The shepherds were the marginalized. The shepherds, they were in the shadows. They were not the powerful. They weren't the wealthy. They were not the people who were so religious. No, they couldn't live a good kosher life because of their job. That's the people that God chose to deliver the message to. They would never have expected it. No one else would have expected it because they were the ones in the shadows traveling along behind that nobody talked about. And I believe God was making a statement in the story by the people He chose to deliver the message to. And maybe the question I would want all of us to ask ourselves today is, do you believe that God wants to deliver the message to you? I want us to understand the story this morning by looking at two things that the angel said. First of all, the angel said to the shepherds, Glory to God on the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom He is pleased. How you interpret the last part of that sentence will determine your whole understanding of this story. With whom He is pleased. Is that a conditional statement? Is it the idea, peace on earth, goodwill to all with whom God's pleased? If you're on the good list, if you're on the naughty list, making a list and checking it twice, which list are you on? Is he pleased? Or do you read that part of the sentence as a declaration, an affirmation that says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards all men with whom He is pleased. It's more reminiscent of the book of Genesis when God looks at all of creation and God calls it good. This is like God looking at all of creation again and saying, He is pleased. Now does that mean He's pleased with everything we do? Not in a million years. But I believe it's an affirmation of saying, I am pleased with creation. It can work. When people choose to do it like I asked them to do it, to be the people they're called to be, I still believe it is good. It can work. You know, you, you and I saw a, a wonderful example of that this week that I found very inspiring as I was watching the funeral of of George Bush. You know, George Bush lived at a time when it was still okay to reach across the aisle, to work with somebody who disagreed with you, to compromise and work for the good of all and, and not just where your party got all the glory. It was right at a time when we began to change as a country and as a world into much more partisan politics We were becoming sharper. It became us versus them. Well, he lived in a time when it was done differently. And the fascinating thing is we think that time has gone by, but I really believe that our President George uh, H.W. Bush showed it wasn't a time that's gone by. We can do it different. It really happened because, you know, after he was president, it was Bill Clinton who beat him, robbed him of a second term, And then after Clinton retired, it was George Bush, the son, who became president. And it was in 2004, when the tsunami hit Thailand and Sri Lanka and Indonesia, that President Bush turned to his father and to Bill Clinton and said, Why don't the two of you go together and go over and and see the devastation and figure out how we provide aid? I remember when this all happened, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, and thinking, What an interesting pair. President Bush and Bill Clinton are traveling to the other side of the world? I didn't know people would do that like that together. Opposite parties and past... They went. And what they saw was all this devastation. And they both were moved with compassion towards what they saw. And they saw that in each other. And they started talking about problems in the United States and education in the United States. And they came away from the trip discovering they liked each other that they agreed on far more things than they had ever imagined. They really liked each other. And so it was in 2006 when we had Katrina hit the coast. Again, President Bush turned to his father and to President Clinton and said, would you all go right or raise money to help the people from this disaster? Well, the two of them went out and they raised $130 million to reach out and try to bless those who were in need. And again, working together, what they discovered was they really did love each other. They liked each other. They had so much in common. Though they were different and they had different opinions on things and their lives had been very different, they really could love and work together for the good of all. I believe God looked at creation and said, it's good. He is pleased with creation, with who we have the potential to be, the way we can work together, it does work. You know, tonight we're going to be having our old church Christmas party. And we're going to have a good time. And we're going to be watching the movie Mr. Long's Neighborhood, which is a real tip of the hat to Mr. Rogers. It was 50 years ago that he created Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And it has such an impact on the children uh, of the United States and, and adults as well. But it started in 1968, 50 years ago. To get ready for the shooting of this movie, I went back and did some real research. I wanted to learn more about Fred Rogers and some of the things I knew, but things like he was a Presbyterian minister. He was a man of great faith. He was a man who wanted to help share his faith through the means of television with children, the things that he believed. What I learned was his um, iconic um, cardigan sweaters. His mother knitted all of his sweaters. She would knit his sweaters, and they were iconic. Well, when he started off, he was determined to make some important uh, social statements. And he wanted to have a police officer on his show, uh, uh, the character of a police officer. And he turned to a man named Francois Clemens. Francois Clemens was a great singer. He was trained in opera, had a great career in singing. And he went to Francois and said, Would you play the character of Officer Clemens on the show? Well, Francois Clemens, as you know, is African American and he's gay. And to come on to the show, he said, you know, I haven't had good experiences with police officers as a kid growing up. He was hesitant, but Fred talked him into it. And he started doing it, show after show. In early 1969, less than when the show had been on, less than a year, America was struggling with all of its race riots and our issues in the '60s. One of the big questions was: Can black people swim in the pool with white people? I mean, I find that hard to fathom. We actually argued about that 50 years ago, but that was a big deal. Can black people swim in the same pool as white people? And so what Fred Rogers did was he had a, a great little show where it was a hot day and he had a little pool for, to put his feet into and he was resting his feet in the pool and then he had Officer Clemens come along and said, why don't you sit down and cool your feet? It'll make you feel so much better. And he sat down and took off his shoes and put his feet into the wading pool because he wanted these three and four and five and six-year-olds to see white and black feet in the same pool. So that they would grow up thinking, well, that's normal. That's how it should be. There's nothing strange about that. It was a strong social statement. You know, at the end of every show, Fred Rogers would wind up saying, I like you just the way you are. You're special just by being you. He'd say that at the end of every show, and and it was interesting, Francois said he had been on the show for years when one day he heard that. And he said, Fred, are you talking to me? And Fred Rogers said, I've been talking to you every day. You just haven't been ready to hear. I wonder if this Christmas if you're ready to hear. Glory to God on the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill with whom He is pleased. Secondly, the angel said to the the shepherds, Behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which will come to all the people. I bring you good news of a great joy which will come to all the people. Understand, all means all. It was good news for the high priest, but he wasn't ready to hear. It was good news for the shepherds. It was the good news for Herod. It was the good news for the wise men. It was good news for the Jew. It was good news for the Gentile is good news for the rich, is good news for the poor. All means all. It was a good news of a great joy that would come to all the people. And sometimes we need to hear this Christmas story because we have forgotten that the good news of a great joy comes to all, even those who are different from us. But you know, we also forget that the good news of a great joy comes for you, for me. And sometimes it's easier to believe in the good news of a great joy that God loves humanity. It's easier to believe that than to believe God loves me. There's good news of a great joy for me with whom He is pleased. We sometimes feel like we're the people in the shadows, flying along behind, that we're not worthy or good enough. Is it really possible at Christmas that God has a message of good news and great joy for me? You know, this last week was such a big week in sports and football for Oklahoma. It was exciting when University of Oklahoma was named to the college playoffs and got one of those spots and is going to be playing for a national championship. It was exciting yesterday when Kyler Murray won the Heisman Trophy. You know, Lots of football talk been going on in, in Oklahoma here in the last week. It made me think about a great football player named Warwick Dunn. Now, You have to be a real football fan to remember Warwick Dunn, but you should if you like football. Because Warwick Dunn, he's been out, he's been retired for several years now, but he played for about 10 years. He played with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and then he played with the Atlanta Falcons, and he ended his career as one of the top 10 running backs in the history of the NFL. He was incredibly successful. But Warwick Dunn has a fascinating life story. He grew up in Louisiana. He was one of six children. His mother was a police officer. She was a single mom. She had to really work hard. That job, and second job, and a third job. Anything she could to keep a roof over their head and food on their table. The thing that was his mother's dream was to finally for them to own their own home. But you could never get ahead enough to get a down payment for a home. To to have all the money you needed for all the other stuff in a home. No, it was a struggle just to keep them in their apartment and, and food on the table and a roof over their head. As I said, there were six kids from ages 11 up to 18. She never did get to see her dream through because when Warwick was 18 years old, she was working a second job as a security guard and there was a bank robbery and she was killed, shot and killed, leaving these six children on their own and Warwick was 18. He'd gotten a scholarship to Florida State University the people of Baton Rouge, when they learned the story, they collected money for a fund to help take care of the children's bills and expenses to help them to survive. But it was Warwick who was over off at school, who had to go to school playing football and being a parent to try to take care of five kids. It was not an easy life. But that's what he did. He managed to go through college and did extremely well, and that's when he got drafted by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. When he went to Tampa, it just so happened that Tony Dungy was the coach. And if you know football, you know Tony Dungy is an incredible man of faith, a man of strength, a man of passion. And he said to Warwick, okay, you're now making millions. You're going to live in this community. You need to be giving back to this community. Just as the people of, of Baton Rouge stepped up for your family, you need to step up for families here. And so he thought about it and he decided, what did he want to do? He wanted to do something to honor his mom. And so he decided what he wanted to do is get with Habitat for Humanity, find people who were trying to get into their own homes but couldn't quite make it, and he would step in and he would make the down payment, usually 10%, and then make a loan where it was interest-free so that their mortgage note would go down But, of course, once you get a house, then you got to furnish the whole thing. And who has money for that if you don't even have a down payment? So he would step in and furnish the house, couches, sofas, beds, tables, all the way to paper towels to toothbrushes. And then he would stock the pantry and stock the freezer and lawn equipment. And he always thought about his mom. Because every year around Christmas, she would get the kids... And they would go drive through neighborhoods and they'd look at the lights and they'd play a game. Which house do you think we ought to buy? They wanted to have that home and they wanted to be home for the holidays. So that's what he named his special charity was Home for the Holidays. And it's every year between Thanksgiving and Christmas that those who have been chosen will suddenly be surprised, notified. You're home for the holidays. You have this house. It's stocked and ready to go. You're home. Well, he did that his very first year, his rookie year in the NFL. And he did it all those years that he played. And now he's continued to do it after he has been retired. And he has blessed hundreds and hundreds of families. And I don't know how many children who have grown up with a home. But it was back about 12 years ago that one of the families that he chose was the Watson family. And they had about five children. He had the Watson family. He the oldest son. He, he was about 12 years old and he wound up going to school. They handed out um, some flyers about um, Habitat for Humanity and getting houses. He brought it home, talked to the family and they all wanted to figure out how could they get a house? Well, it was in about 12 years ago when their family was suddenly chosen. They had no idea, out of the blue, you're home for the holidays. And they were so thrilled. Well, it turned out that that eldest son, his name was Deshaun. And Deshaun, now that he had a home, was able to focus really on school and football. He looked at Warwick and thought, this man has such a platform, he is Uh, able to do such good things because he is a football player. He thought, I want to be a football player. And so he really focused in high school on playing football. And in the end, he was really good. And he got a scholarship to Clemson. And he went to Clemson. And if you remember just not long ago, he would lead Clemson to a national championship to Sean Watson as their quarterback. And he played so well, he was drafted by the Houston Texans, and he is now the quarterback for the Houston Texans. And with their new quarterback, this year they are having an incredible year in one of the finest teams in the NFL. And they were talking to Deshaun Watson, asking him, what did it mean when you got a home for the holidays? And Deshaun Watson said, it changed my life forever. To have a home where I had my own room, where I felt safe. It enabled me to focus on school and football. It changed my life forever. And sometimes I still wonder, why did they choose us? It's not because you're on the good list. It's not because You are so worthy and deserve it. Good news of a great joy for all the people. Do you believe that God wants to give good news of a great joy to you? It's what the shepherds heard. Those who had been flying in the shadows Those who felt less than worthy, not good enough, they were the ones who were given the good news that a baby was born. God reaching out to the world with good news of a great joy. You know my love of sports, and one of my favorite stories is of Bobby Orr. He may be the greatest hockey player ever. He, Wayne Gretzky, it's a good discussion incredible hockey players but David E Kelly he he writes scripts for TV out in Los Angeles but he tells about when he was growing up in Boston he was an 11-year-old boy and this was back in the 70s and if you're in Boston in the 70s you rooted for Bobby Orr because Bobby Orr grew up in Canada and then he had played and he got drafted by the Boston Bruins and he came to Boston And there he brought them the Stanley Cup. He wound up being MVP multiple years. No, I mean, Bobby was an incredible athlete. But more than that, he was a wonderful human being. Such a wonderful human being. And when he was 11 years old, David learned that there was going to be the Bobby Orr hockey camp. And more than anything, he wanted to go and learn how to play hockey and play with Bobby Orr. So he saved his money and he managed to go to this hockey camp only to discover that usually when stars put on these sports athletic camps, it's the assistants who do the camp. I mean, the stars don't have time to come, and that's how it was. Bobby Orr wasn't there. It was all the assistants who were putting on the camp, and he was rather disappointed. But he had a good time. He worked hard. It was two weeks, and the first week went by. And then the second week, unbeknownst to anybody, Bobby Orr showed up. He came to skate with the kids. And David was thrilled. He said, I was out there on the ice and I'd be skating and Bobby would come by and take his stick and he'd tap on my shins. Put this foot here. Put this and back over there. You're not doing... He was teaching me how to skate and play hockey. I was skating with Bobby Orr. And he just was so excited and always saying, oh, I just love you so much and thank you. I'm so grateful. And it was an incredible week in his life. And when he came to the end of the week, He was saying to Bobby, when the season opens in three months, I'm going to be there. I'll be there at the rail cheering for you. And Bobby said very graciously, that's so very kind of you. I'll be looking for you. That will be very nice. Well, he went home. He managed to get tickets. He's going to be there at the opening game. He went early so he could get down to the rail. And he got to the rail and he kind of got down actually near the ice, but what he didn't count on was, you know, there were Hundreds of people who wanted to be there at the rail, all screaming and shouting. He was 11 years old. Here were all these adults and everybody else ringing this rail right by the locker room doors where the team would come out, and everybody's leaning over, wanting to get a high five or touch the players. You see how it happens at these sporting events. They wanted to touch the players, they wanted a high five. And this 11 year old boy looked around and he realized, I'm lost in a sea of humanity. Bobby hadn't gonna see me. But he was there, he was screaming, and finally the doors opened up and the team started to come out. But when the team started to come out, they weren't coming out for high fives. How you doing? How you doing? They had their game face on. They were focused on the ice. They were looking straight ahead. There was no reaching out to touch people. They were focused on the ice. And David said he stopped screaming. He just started looking for Bobby. And he stood there and the players were coming out and finally he spotted Bobby and he was waving. But he said, Bobby wasn't going to see me. He was looking at the ice. And as they came out and were coming by and everybody screaming, suddenly when Bobby Orr was right there where David was, his hand went up. And David said it so shocked him that it took him a second to realize Bobby Orr was reaching out for him. And he reached out and Bobby grabbed his hand and squeezed it for just a second and then he was onto the ice. And David said, that was 30 years ago. And I can remember it like it was yesterday because it meant so much to me that Bobby Orr, he reached out to me to say, I see you, I know you. You're special to me. When I see the shepherds kneeling at the manger, I feel like God is reaching out for them to say, I see you. I know you. You're special to me. The story this Christmas for you is God is reaching out for you with whom He is pleased with good news of a great joy that comes to you. And when you hear that message, it changes everything. That's why it's the greatest story ever told. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.